This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. I would like to welcome two-time Corn Ferry winner and a player of the year in 1999, also the host of Inside the Ropes on Sirius XM Radio, Carl Paulson to the Sub-70 Podcast. Uh, Pro, been looking forward to this for a while. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. Looking forward to this. So uh, what's going on? I heard you're, you're not playing any golf right now. You're on the uh, IR, the injured, the injury reserve report. What's, uh, what's happening to the old body here, my man? Well, I think most of it's in between the years, to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, my back's been a little tight here and there, and just uh, it's hot. And I played bad last time I played, so I'm just gonna take a little time here. But no, it's all good. It's all good. I've been sort of working on the game a little bit. Um, you know, I turned 50 in December, so I was hoping to go to Q School for the Champ Store this year, and they've canceled that. So. I'm not real sure. I'll maybe try to do some Mondays early next year and then go to Q school the following year. But, um, yeah, not much going on, really. That that journey is an interesting one on the, on the Champions Tour. And so would you have to go – would you be able to Monday qualify or would you have to pre-qualify to get to the Monday with your status for the years you were on the PGA Tour? Do you know where you stand on that one at this point? Yeah, yeah, no, no pre-qualifier with the number of cuts that I've made. I'm di- directly into the Monday qualifiers. Where is the desire for that one? And I know like how high the quality of play still is out there. Like, do you think you can, you know, keep doing what you're doing with media stuff and still be competitive out there? Or is it so competitive that you would almost have to say, okay, I'm committing to doing this full time to get ready to play at the level those guys still play it out there? Or do you think you could kind of balance both acts? Uh, no, it, it, those guys are really good. Some of them have even gotten better as they've gotten older, which is crazy, but um, if, if I was going to be competitive out there and, and be trying to win tournaments, I would have to be doing that full time. And I like my job a lot, so I don't see that happening. <laughs> but what a fun challenge to be able to do it every now and then, right? So if you can get into the Mondays, you know, try it five or six times a year. I mean, hell, there's nothing to lose. And it'd still be fun to kind of get that competitive juice flowing a little bit, I'd have to imagine, right? Of like, where do you For still sure. stack up against the guys you played with and all your buddies are out there and. You know, you look at, like, what Brandle did. I mean, he still had some pretty good rounds for not putting them, you know. You, obviously, you guys have that level of talent. It doesn't fully ever go away, right? It's not like it's, not yeah, like it's me no, out there I, trying. I, like, I, you guys can do it still. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. When I play well, I still play really well. When I, The problem is when I play poorly, I don't shoot even. Um, I shoot 75 or 76, and that's the issue. Uh, when you don't, when you're not consistently playing and consistently practicing and keeping on top of your game, uh, you know I'll go through four, five, six, seven rounds of, of really good scores, and then all of a sudden I start shooting 75, and I, I'm not going to go out there and, and practice all day every day and, until that's gone, and that's that's the difference. So there's a lot of times when I'm when I know I'm not playing all that well, and I just don't play that much when I'm doing, when I'm in one of those. Uh, one of those little downturns, but no, I'm really looking forward to playing some, some champs events. Um, I'll try to qualify for all the majors. I'll fly over and try the, the, you know, the senior British open and the U S open and 
all the ones that you can qualify. They've got five or six of them that are close enough for me to drive to try next year. So I'll definitely be working on my game a little bit more this winter to try and get it to a point where if I do play well, I can qualify. You know, that's that's the key. Um, it's just stupid to even try if if you're playing well and shooting, you know, 71. So, um, but no, yeah, I'm, I, I think it would be a, a, a whole lot of fun to to go out there and compete again. I mean, it's been a long time, man. Physically, is your body in good enough shape to handle it? If you did, let's say you went out there and won and you're exempt for, for that next full season. Physically, are you? I know with all the injuries you sustained on the PGA Tour, are you in pretty good shape to be able to do a season if, if the cards worked out that way? Um, I'm, I'm, pro- I'm in the best shape that I've been in since I was in college in terms of my body, uh, you know, cardio and what I weigh and all of that. Um, in terms of the body holding up to the rigors of playing week in and week out, no. Um, yeah, I would have to play a limited schedule regardless. So uh, it's sort of a wait and see. We're just kind of a wait and see right now. I'm, there's no rush. Well, you're like Tiger. You just do like a Hogan season where you play like seven events and go win four of them or something like that. And, you know, greatness I'm, on the Champions I'm, Tour. I'm exactly like Tiger, except, right. except uh, the, the, the the bank account is a little different. And minor other things as well, but we don't you know, need to go there. But other than, you both played the PGA Tour. We'll put it to I'm you exactly that way. You both like played Tiger. the PGA I, Tour. Anytime somebody puts me in the same category or sentence with Tiger, I accept. Well, let's look at uh, the season so far. This has been a strange golf season, even for us on the equipment side and everything. It's like start, stop, and then golf's really busy right now. It's It's been like an interesting year. Like So from like 5,000 feet, because you're in the media covering this, what two or, three, two or three things have you found like just fascinating this year, interesting about kind of the whole season so far? I think the thing that surprised me the most so far and maybe it's because it's the most recent but the recent play since we've returned from the covid hiatus has been off the charts i mean guys are shooting you know with the exception of the memorial tournament where they had that golf course playing impossible you know guys are shooting 20 under every week it's just insane to me how many people are playing each and every week we've had four or five tournaments that have had the best field that they've ever had um, the Memorial Tournament was the best field that the PGA Tours ever had. That was, you know, that was a tournament run by the PGA, which is just crazy. Um, so all of the high-profile guys are playing, and everybody's playing really well. I mean, obviously you got guys that are not playing well and missing some cuts that you would expect to play well. But as a tour, as a whole tour, they've been just, I mean, lighting it up, and it's been fun to watch. Do you think it's a fair statement to say that the players are going lower, better today than you guys were, say, 20, 25 years ago? Or do you think the equipment has made that big of a difference where you're seeing the scores go to where they are? Or do you think the guys just are, it's better information, more analytics, bigger, stronger athletes, and the equipment in the ball? Or do you, how do you sort of see that generation split between when you were out there and what you see it now? A little bit of everything. Um they, these guys work out a lot harder. They take care of their bodies a lot more. It's more of a business, um, kind of a business venture now. They're bigger. They're stronger. They're faster. They've got equipment that our equipment you can't, you couldn't swing as hard as these guys swing. You'd break it. Number one, number two, the sweet spots were too small. You'd need a compass and a search party if you were swinging 125 miles an hour with the clubs that we played with. Now, I was a high 
swing some speed guy when I was on tour. I was in the in the 117 range and with that equipment that we had. It, much more than that, and and there was kind of a diminishing return. Um, so the equipment has allowed the players to swing faster, but the players have taken that to a new level with their uh, with their physical shape, how, what they do to keep in shape, what they're eating. They're uh, they're a lot bigger, they're a lot taller, they're a lot younger now too as well. So. I think it's a combination of everything. I think it'd be fun as hell to watch those guys play a tournament with our equipment, though. Well, wouldn't that be interesting? Because I mean, I'm I'm grew up with the same equipment you basically you know grew up with as well, and you know I still can't swing an eight iron that hard because I still you know you could it's not in my DNA, right? Like you right. kind of kind of flight it in there because it would just go off the map, right? And I, I, I miss it. I've talked about this on the podcast. I miss at some level a Corey Pavin being able to compete and carve in you know, five irons in from 174 and hitting all these crazy shots, and he could still, at the end of the day, compete against, you know, what would be a big hitter in that day, Dan Pohl or something like that, right? It, it, to me, it's gotten – I get it. I mean, it's one-dimensional, and that's kind of what the hand those players have been dealt. So, like, if you look at what Bryson's doing, it kind of makes sense. And I'd love to hear your comments on that. But I do miss finesse a little bit in the game versus just, you know – uh, you go to a corn fairy event, watch those guys, and it's like yeah. seventy three hundred yard golf courses are just literally pitch and putts. Like literally, yeah. who's best from ninety yards and in and putting eight footers that week? It's amazing. I, I played a little bit in two thousand eleven, uh, trying to come back and just playing my medical out. And I was playing a corn fairy tour event out in California. And I was playing with, with uh, uh, gosh, I can't even remember the guy, the kid's name. I mean, he hasn't done anything, and. It was 297. There was this little finger of water that came out in the middle of the fairway, and it, it went about three-quarters of the way. It was only about 10 yards wide, and then it just kind of went back in. It was sort of like a coffin bunker, but it was a, a hazard. I guess they're called penalty areas now, but that, that's another thing that's hard for me to change. And so I had a drive, kind of just eased off a drive because the ball was rolling, you know, and it rolled up to – I hit it 285 or something. I'm 10 yards short of the water. It's perfect. And this guy I'm playing with has got a two iron out or something like that, or a three iron, some kind of driving iron. He was just not very comfortable with it. And he looked at his caddy and he said, how far is it over the water? And the caddy goes, it's only 312. He goes, oh, well, here, take this. Give me the driver. He drives it over the water and he's got 79 yards in and I'm hitting a 185-yard shot in there. And I was like, yeah, I think it's time to uh, find somebody that's willing to give me a microphone. Yeah, right. Like it's, uh, we were out at a corn fairy event. Was it two years ago? And we got to play a couple holes with Nick Hardy and Jane out there for doing some media stuff. It's like a 440 yard hole that just 445 or something that pinches in so much. So he took the conservative route, which would have been driving iron off the tee to about 150. Once, once again, a utility club and mm -hmm. like a pitching wedge. Sure. 445-yard hole was literally a flip pitching wedge from like a buck fifty, little downwind in a 295-yard utility club. <laughs> and Jay and I look at each other like, <laughs> you know, uh, we're, I mean, I'm hitting like driver, you know, five iron, and yeah. hitting it good. You know, sure. it's just like the the power those guys have. Uh, the modern young player, like, uh, heard a good analogy watching, you know, golf this weekend. It's, I think Davis Love III said it, where it's they're long and really long. There is no 
medium length guys hardly of the of the youth movement coming out anymore. I don't see it at least. It's Yeah, you know, it's great to see guys like Brian Gay play well every now and then and some of the other guys that don't hit it very far. And there's still a piece of pie out there for those guys if you're good enough. You know, if you shoot 67 every day, I don't give a damn how far you hit it. You shoot 67 every day. It's just harder for those guys to do that versus these guys that hitting wedge into every hole. But there's still a little piece of pie out there for those guys. I mean, there's guys that have been making a great living out there, uh, you know, hitting at 270, 275 still to this day. But that's gonna that's gonna continue to disappear. Those guys are gonna continue to disappear because. Uh, the equipment affords these guys the the opportunity to swing a lot harder and a lot faster. And, and don't forget the the technology that comes along with instruction. Instruction is so much better than it used to be. Um, you know, we relied on a set of eyes that we trusted, and they would tell us something, and we would entrust in that person. And thank God I had somebody that I trusted 100%. Um, but it was more kind of dig it out of the dirt. What's the ball doing? What's the divot doing? And, and we didn't have these numbers spitting back out at us every time we made a golf swing. Um, you know, we kind of had to go, okay, that felt good, and it looked like it went the right distance. And uh, so the precision of the game has gotten so much greater in the last 10 years, it's not even funny. Speaking of power game, I'd love to hear your uh, thoughts on Bryson and that journey of where he's going and how he's playing golf and just that whole thing from, you know, your seat in the media and, the, and covering the PGA Tour. What's sort of your analysis of that? Well, I I always start out by talking about Bryson DeChambeau with saying this. Let's not forget before he beefed up and before he started to be, before he started to go all Lou Ferrigno on us, um, that he had won five times on the PGA Tour. He won the NCAAs and he won the uh, U.S. Amateur. So we're talking about a world-class player to start with, okay? That doesn't go away just because you get big and strong. And I think a lot of people forget about that. You know, they think, oh, here comes this guy out of nowhere who's now going to hit it 350 or 360 in the air um, and and just overpower every golf course. If he hits it straight, he's going to be in contention to win every week. Um, but they forget where he came from and the golf that he's played and everything that he's put into it. So – I, I urge people to remember that before they go off on what Bryson DeChambeau is doing. The other thing is there's nobody on the PGA tour that's put more into their game than Bryson DeChambeau has over the last eight months. So not only now, listen, nobody really knows what the end game is here. I don't even really think he knows what the end game is. Uh, I mean, is he going to continue to get bigger? I mean, he can't grow six inches. So there's going to be a point where he gets so big that he can't swing. So there's going to be a max out there, but I don't think he knows where that is, and I don't think anybody else knows where it is. But he has a he has a game plan, and he has a theory that he believes in, and, and he's going after it 100%. You know why there haven't been a lot of other people that do that? Because people are inherently lazy, and there you cannot be lazy if you plan on doing something like Bryson DeChambeau is doing. I applaud him for being different, for doing things his way, and and listen – the other thing I'll tell you, for all the roll-back-the-ball squad out there that's saying, hey, this is getting ridiculous, Bryson's going to hit it that much further than everybody else when they do that as well. So, uh, you know, who cares? Uh, it, that, that's the way – that's kind of how I look at it. But I, I, I'm impressed by what he's done. I'm impressed by somebody being able to change their body that quickly, 
and still practice and and kind of hone your skills as you're doing it. And he's been able to play really good golf during this whole thing. So I, I listen. Is he going to make some tens like he did at at Muirfield Village for the Memorial Tournament? Yeah, sure. But it's worked very well for Phil Mickelson. He's won forty something times. So um, I I like what he's doing. I applaud him. I think it people don't understand how much he's put into it and. And, and and basically the guy lives, eat and breathes and lifts weights and everything because of what he does for a living. And that's a, that's the kind of guy that I want to cover. Do you think that guys are looking at their careers a little different than, than your generation where if the body is shot by 40, 38 at that point, like sort of other sports, they're going to be okay with it where they realize yeah, that doing sure. this in their forties to fifties is just not going to be realistic. So the hell with it. If my back does go out by that point, I just want 15 good years and, We'll yeah, see what why, the chips not? why not? You know, I mean, I don't think we're going to see the Phil Mickelson's, the the Jack Nicholas's, the you know Tom Kites and the, the Tom Watsons of the world as much as we used to um, in future in, in the future players because they swing so hard and they put so much stress on their body. I mean, you're going from 125 miles an hour to zero, and you know a span of a half of a golf swing. So, yeah, I do. I, I, I do think that these guys now, with especially with the money they're making, I mean, they're making life-setting money. They're making two, three generations of life-setting money in a 12, 15-year period. And if you can play good golf and make that money for 12 or 15 years, so what? You know, I mean, that's, that's, how, you, that's how those guys get in the Hall of Fame, by winning a bunch. And that's what they're trying to do. And they're kind of throwing caution to the wind, I think, in, in, in some cases with how fast they're swinging. But, you know, that's the nature of the game now, because if you don't do that, you can't keep up with, the, with what's going on in the game today. So I don't think we're going to see a, a lot of 25, 30-year players anymore. What do you think is going on with Kepka a little bit? You know, golf's tough, uh, you know, where he kind of has ebbs and flows. Do you think it's still injuries he's dealing with? Do you think it's something else? What do you sort of... Uh, seeing his game as we kind of get you know near his uh, sweet spot of big championships and majors coming up here on this run yeah i'm not sure if that knee is 100 percent, but let's just assume it is i'm not sure there was a whole lot done done during the uh covid quarantine down there at the kepka household i could be wrong i don't have any inside information to that i'm not privy to any uh anything that's going on down there with that but it looked to me like he just he, it looked to me like he took eight weeks off and didn't do anything. And and I, I believe he thought it was going to be a, a little bit easier to come back. That could be completely wrong, but I'm not sure if that knee is 100% yet. Um, you know, they talk about, oh, don't worry, we got the WGC this week and we got the PGA Championship the week after, and he's defending at both of them. He'll win one of those and be fine. I'm not really seeing that, to be honest with you. We saw, we've seen some up, upticks in his game before those major championship wins. And I really haven't seen much from, from Brooks. Listen, you mentioned it. Golf is hard. And Jack Nicholas went through some streaks. Tiger Woods went through some streaks. All the best players in the world went through some streaks where they didn't play uh, particularly well for, for who they are and how they normally play. So I'm not really worried about Brooks in that manner. Uh, it's just kind of interesting that, it's taken this long. Now, listen, he finished seventh down there in South Carolina in Hilton Head. 
they still didn't play like the Brooks Kepka that we're used to seeing uh, out there on the golf course when he starts playing well, he starts hitting it well and making putts and, and then everybody else kind of knows that, Hey, they're going to have to play perfect golf to beat him. And um, we just haven't seen that. And I'm not sure we're going to see it. I listen, he's so far back on the list right now. Last week, if he would have finished sixth alone and nobody else moved on the FedEx cup list, he would have only moved up to 119th and that's without anybody else accruing any points. So not only is he going to have to play really well one week, he's going to have to play really well two weeks uh, to get into the playoffs. So this is his time, right? He's defending champ like it, as I mentioned in the next two events, he's got a couple more events after that to try and get into the playoffs, but I think he's in trouble. DJ, same thing. There's got to be something injured going on there, right? I mean, you can't win then just, you know, look like a three handicap out there. Well, and the funny thing was the wind kind of came out of left field because he wasn't playing well before that either. So the wind kind of came out of left field a little bit. I, I don't know what happened that week or what's happening since, but you would think a guy that's won as many times as he has on tour, who's been number one in the world, uh, 80, 80, 78, and then, then a withdrawal is, is, is something weird. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was something going on. WGC event uh, in Memphis. Uh, do you think the, the the whole WGC concept has lived up to what the PGA Tour wants it to be? And, and from covering it, do you see a different kind of buzz when one of these events are happening? Or how do you think it's uh, how do you think it's gone over for where they wanted that? to be marketed as and sort of importance on the PGA tour schedule and how much do you enjoy watching them? Let's say versus a regular tour event. To me, they're the same. Um, Obviously you're going to have a better field, right? And a lot of them, they don't have cuts. And then of course they've got the match play. The match play is fun to watch, Uh, but watching Mexico, Mexico city to me, isn't any different than any other tournament. Uh, I think, in the long run, if you were assessing this from the very beginning, if you were a part of it from the very beginning, I would have a hard time agreeing with somebody that said it's been a massive success. I, I just don't – and this could be just me personally, um, but I, I'm just not sure that these world golf events are great for the PGA Tour in terms of if you get into that top 50 and you don't get injured, it's really hard to play out of it. I mean, you can, we've seen people do it, but man, you're playing in four or five of these free FedEx cup points events and these free money events. And, and um, to me that it's like, you know, everybody puts these tournaments in chronological order, right? You got the major championships, you got the players championships and then everybody goes directly to, the world golf championships. I, I don't, I don't even come close to putting it there. I think the playoff events are, have a bigger and better feel to it. I think that some of the invitationals have as equal of a feel to it. So, you know, I, I'm putting them about equal with the, you know, the invitationals like Jack's tournament and, and uh, the Arnold Palmer invitational and, and stuff like that. I, to me, like, I don't get, I'm like, I'm, I'm excited to see what's going to happen this week, but I'm not, super fired up because it's a WGC. You got a sleeper pick for us that, uh, you know, the obvious are the obvious, but is there somebody on your radar a little bit that you're like, it's going to be a hundred degrees. It's going to be hot. It's going to be tough on these guys. I like what this guy's game is trending. Is there anyone that we should be kind of watching that might be coming, you know, from the back of the pack a little bit as we kind of look at the the stars of the tour? Man, I'm so bad at this. 
<laughs> I'm so bad at this. I mean, sometimes I, I have an inkling. If I were going to tell somebody, um, like how to look for somebody to pick, I would go look at how they've done at this course. Cause it is a tough golf course. It's got different grasses than the guys are normally playing on. It's got the Zoysia fairways, but they only play that three or four times a year. It's got uh, champions greens. It's a very, very difficult golf course, depending on the weather. Now it looks like they're going to be getting some rain and it's going to be semi soft out there, which is, uh, which is a shame because when that golf course is firm, it is, really really difficult um if you're going to put me on the spot i'm going to go with daniel berger he's won the tournament twice before it was the wgc and he obviously plays but well there he won earlier this year he's been on a pretty nice uh pretty nice heater so far in 2020 so uh daniel berger good choice yeah he is trending well i've played that golf course a couple of times and being somebody who's on bent grass you want to talk about confused green reading Oh man, that's a. I, I need to spend more time in the South on that one. Like it's a, it's a good golf course, but like I was just deplorable trying to read speed of the different grain. You know the, how much the grain can affect that those putts on those on that golf course. It's and a, all of us that grew up tricky. on Bermuda grass, the grain always grew towards the setting sun. It would grow uphill, and with these new strands, the 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 thatch is so tight, and the root structure and everything is so tight that. All the grain runs downhill, and they've got a lot of ridges out there at that golf course. And if you get yourself out of position with your approach shots, you're going to have 30 and 40 footers where the first maybe three quarters of the putt is into the green and uphill. And then when it crests the hill, it's straight down grain and straight downhill. Straight downhill. So um, those putts are really difficult, and I think that's the one of the problems that Champions presents. And good par threes out there too. That's, that's really good. Real good par threes, if right? By, if by good you mean almost impossible, yeah, really good. <laughs> well, tough. It's like it's tough yeah, part. The par threes are you gotta like you gotta golf your ball in those par threes. Like there's not one sort of breather par three out there. I've laid up uh, on fifteen good. as many times as I've tried to hit that green, and that's the honest to God's truth. And that's coming from a guy that was right around a hundredth in the world when I was playing. Uh, you know, some of my better golf. I just laid up on that whole day. It is just that the hole is so hard. It's a good golf course. It's a very good golf course. Uh, major coming up, Harding Park. Have you ever played out there before? I haven't. I, I, I've started to do some some homework and some prep work for our uh, for SiriusXM's coverage of it. We've got the uh, we've got the coverage along with Westwood One, and um, it's going to be a, a very interesting broadcast. We're going to have people all over the country. We're only going to have two people on site that are going to be contributing to the broadcast. Uh, we've got a full studio that's being built out here in Orlando for most of the guys that can drive from the southeast. Uh, we've got uh, McGinnis is going to be at home. We've got Fred Albers is going to be in New Mexico. Uh, so it's it's going to be really interesting, but it's going to be a lot of fun to try and to try and pull this off. So I, I've been trying to learn a little bit more about the golf course. Because I have not played it, unfortunately. But from all accounts, it's a, a a really good golf course that lost its way and uh, has been infused with a with a remodel and a redo and, and a lot of money. And now starting to have bigger events there. Remember, they had the President's Cup there, and that was the first real right. tournament that brought that golf course back to the prestige that it used to have. They used to have a PGA Tour event way back in the 
I believe it was the sixties, but, um, I don't know a whole lot about the golf course right now, unfortunately. How, how strange is it going to be to have a major championship without fans? <clears throat> Excuse me. And how will that affect the players? Right? Like that's, I mean, that's part of that buzz on the back nine of a Sunday at a major, right? I mean, you've played in major yeah. championships. I mean, I mean, how do you think it's going to affect potentially the players or the tournament or the vibe of it? And you know, and will it still have that? I mean, you've played in regular tour events and you've played in majors. I have to imagine there's a different buzz when you step in that first team in a major championship. And will that not be there without the fans all around? Definitely a different vibe. I, I think, though, that everybody is kind of embrace the no fans okay because it's it is what it is i hate that thing but it's it's so true in this in this context of of playing a major championship without fans here's the good news all of these pga tour players that are playing in this major championship next week have played four or five tournaments without any fans uh the european tour players maybe a little bit less um but everybody's done it now so they kind of know what to expect. But I, I was saying the same thing in the playoff between uh, JT and Morikawa at, at Muirfield. Uh, I believe it was the workday, right? Yeah, it was the workday. It was the one before the, 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 before, um, the memorial. I'm not so sure that Colin Morikawa would have made that putt from 24 feet. He may have, but I think it would have been a lot harder waiting two or three minutes for the crowd to settle down I think Justin's reaction would have been much more excitable, even though he screamed as loud as he could. But that he it, he wouldn't have hit that putt when he hit it if we had fans there. Those would have been two of the of the loudest roars of the year, and we missed that. But I think everybody would rather have golf to watch under these circumstances than worry too much about bitching and complaining about not having fans. But a I, I little agree. bit of golf is better than nothing, I guess. And it's still going to be a ma- I mean, for the players, it's still going to be a major. It's still going to be fun to watch on TV or wh- sure. however you get your media anywhere. It's still going to be a guy playing for the Wanamaker, right? Like, it's still – it's huge. Oh, so yeah. So I'm looking forward to getting some majors back in the, the golf rotation, right? I, mean, I missed it. Um, but it's going to be interesting to watch, though, like, you know, what's question, it look like? I think the big question is going to be – uh, if, you know, they've canceled fans th- through the rest of the season. Now we've had tournaments in the fall for the 2021 season that have already said that they're not going to have fans. This is where it gets a little strange to me. Would they play the Masters tournament at Augusta National without fans? And if they did, I think that would be a bit eerie. But don't you think they would, I mean, when do they have to make that call? Do they have a hard line yet of when they're going to say they're going to let patrons in or not? I, I'm not uh, privy to that information. Um, I, I'm assuming that you know they, they don't have their their build out. It, although it's the Masters and it's the greatest tournament, and everybody wants to win it, that build out for the fans, it, it's everything that's there. I mean, it, like the concession stands and everything, they're hard buildings. They're not putting those up and taking them down every right. day. So either they're going to be open and, and filled up with high school and college kids selling sandwiches and cheap beers. Or they're just going to be, you know, shut down and locked up. So I don't think it's as big a deal for uh, for Augusta National as it is for some of these other golf courses that have to build something out and they've got to start doing it 12 weeks in advance and it takes all this time to put all this stuff up. So they might be able to push that decision a little bit more than most. 
I'm going to talk to you about your playing career. Uh, you had one hell of a season on the Corn, which was Nike Tour back then, but Corn Ferry Tour. Two wins, Player of the Year. What what came together for you that season to kind of have that level of consistency and you know and play that well for the entire season and get your PGA Tour card? And kind of looking back, what did you do really well in your you know that season to kind of get to where you got? Well, I, let me just take a step back before I get to 1999. I, I I got on tour right out of college in 1995, and I played two years on the PGA Tour and had no idea what I was doing. Um, did I have the physical abilities to shoot 62? Yeah, sure. I did it my rookie season one time. I did it at Disney. Um, but I really didn't know how to play golf. And and when I went back to then the Nike tour, I think I finished like 40th my first year, but learned a lot and um, was humbled by the fact that I wasn't playing on the PGA tour anymore. And now I'm a full-time Nike tour player. And for me to get off this tour, I'm going to have to finish in the top 15. So it, I was so much more streaky when I first got to the Nike tour now, now corn Ferry tour. And I knew that it was going to take a lot of mental preparation and a lot of mental work to try and figure out how to play better more often. I finished like 22nd the second year that I played on the, that I played on that Nike tour. And that off season, I just decided to work really hard. Um, there were a lot of times in the off season, I would take some time off and get away. I decided to work really hard and make a, make a real good run at, uh, at getting into that top 15. Cause I was so close, you know, just only missing out by seven spots a year before, but I got a handwritten letter from my mother, um, over that Christmas break. And although it had a lot of support and love in it, it had some, hey, you need to learn how to win and you need to start winning and you need to get over yourself and you need to do whatever you need to do to win. Like like just a perfect amount of kick you in the ass and a perfect amount of let me give you a hug now. And, um, I took that letter to heart. And when I got out there in, in 99, I, I was ready to rock. I, I think I missed the first two couple of cuts, but, um, you know, at once I started getting on a roll, I was, uh, you know, every single week I was finishing in the top 10. I think I had eight or 10 top 10 finishes, whatever it was. And I was in contention for three or four times before I finally won, uh, out in Utah. And after the last time that I was in contention, I, uh, Jerry Fultz was interviewing me and he was, he was saying, what's it going to take for you to win? And I was so mad. I got emotional in this interview and I was so mad. And I, I, I think I even told Jerry, I said, Jerry, if I get the next time I get in contention and I don't win, I think I'm going to quit. I, I mean, this is how angry I was that I hadn't won a tournament and <clears throat> came out the next time I got in contention was just a few weeks later and won by six and then took a week off and then came back and won by five. And so I had my run, you know, I was playing good enough golf to do that, but just hadn't put everything together. And that kind of put me over the hump. They were sort of late wins in the season. I won in Boise and I won in in Utah and they were in the September area. So it was, although it was nice and I was comfortably in that top 15 for most of that, you know, that summer or I was right around it. I knew that once I won that tournament, I was going to be back on the PGA Tour. It freed me up a little bit you know, to take a week off and then come back and 
and play so well. I didn't touch the club a club the whole time, the whole entire time that I took that week off. In fact, that week that I took off, I had played 78 consecutive Nike Tour events that were available to play in. Now, they weren't 78 consecutive weeks, but I did not skip a tournament for two and three-quarter season because I just felt like I, I, I wasn't afforded that luxury because I wasn't high enough on any, any money lists or – uh, any points list or whatever they had. And so um, when I won that tournament, I knew I was in and I, I could breathe a little bit. And I finally took a week off, didn't touch a club and then came back and won again in Boise. And so it was, a, it was a fun run. There's no question about it. And then, it, you know, I learned so much playing the, the corn Ferry tour. It, it's, it's not even funny. I wouldn't have had nearly the success when I got back to the PGA tour that I had without going back down there for three years and really learning how to play golf. Looking back at your PGA Tour career, what's just like the couple, two or three coolest things now that you can kind of look back and appreciate and be like, that was that was pretty damn awesome? Oh, man. Um, look, golf has afforded me so much, right? It's, it got me an education in college. Um, I got to not have a real job, basically, uh, since I've gotten out of college, I've played golf, and then I've talked about it. I don't, I don't consider either one of those real jobs. You're, I'm just doing something that I like, and I happen to get paid for it. And and the people that I've met probably tops everything. I mean, you know, the people that I still keep in touch with, the people that, um, you know, that every time I see once or twice a year at major championships or whatever it might be, it's almost like we played together last week at an event. And just, I would say the people that I've met is, is really the coolest part about the job. Best player you ever played with where you're just like the talent blew you away of just, I knew the guy was good, but seeing it up close and, you know, playing against him as a competitor, you know, holy shit, can that guy play? I was a rookie and I got a phone call on Wednesday afternoon that somebody had withdrawn from the Canadian Open and I got in. And so I got on a plane and they can't do They can't redo the tee times when somebody withdraws. And it was a, it was a, somebody that was in the B category, which is the winners. And um, so I got the call. So I fly up and I'm playing with Davis love and that I don't even know who the other guy, what we were playing with was. That's how impressed I was with Davis love. I remember we got on the, I think it's the six hole at the par three. It's a, got a couple tiers in it it was about a 210 yard hole it was into the wind and davis love takes his ball and drops it from about waist high onto the tee rolls it over with his three iron and hits this three iron that went to the moon that didn't move left or right and landed a foot from the hole and stopped and and uh i remember saying to myself when i need to go home and get better because i can't beat this guy and that really motivated me um, you know, some of the players that I've seen play in my day, you know, Phil Mickelson and David Duvall and Tiger Woods and, and BJ Singh, all very, very impressive players. But that two days that I spent watching Davis Love play really changed uh, how I looked at the rest of my career. After you were done playing and the, the injuries and all that stuff, how did the, the media side come about and how was your sort of uh, journey into what you're doing now and what was sort of the first steps and, and, and obviously you enjoy it, you're good at it and how did you sort of get involved in on that side of the coin? 
So I, I did a couple of the play-by-plays for the PGA Tour, and that's run by PGA Tour Entertainment. Um, it, it was nothing steady. It was just kind of filling in here and there, and, and, and I enjoyed that. Um, I had a small little advertising company where we would go put in these big $30,000 scoreboards at local golf courses and then sell advertising that went around the outside, and then they could use it as a scoreboard. It was a pretty cool little project, but I – hated it. I mean, literally hated it. The work, the driving around, asking people for money. It just, I just, I couldn't stand it. So um, the president of uh, on-air talent at Sirius XM, um, Scott Greenstein, was on a trip and he was listening to our channel and was listening to the play-by-play. And and he said, man, I need to listen to this channel more. This is really good. And noticed that there were a lot of replays on air. At r- right about that time, uh, John McGinnis, who has had a show for, I don't know, probably five or six years at this time, kept telling me, dude, you got to find somebody to do a show with. You'd be great at it. You'll love it. It'll be fun. That'll fill up some time on the channel. And Dennis was doing, Dennis Paulson, who I do the show with, was doing um, a lot of the play-by-play. And I called him up and I said, well, this is kind of interesting, right? Two guys with the same last name that aren't related. Uh, that both played on the PGA tour at the same time, doing a radio show together to talk about all the stuff that we've been through, the stuff that we learned and the stuff that we know. I thought, man, that might be a good idea. So we pitched it to them and they, uh, they liked the idea and gave us some, uh, gave us some practice shows. You know, we did about, I don't know, eight or 10 practice, two hour practice shows. And then, uh, they gave us a, a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday time slot from three to five. And we, the people just kind of took to it. And that's kind of how it happened. And then, you know, obviously being with Sirius XM now for eight years and doing the show for that long, it's afforded me the opportunity to start doing some of the analyst work and some of the hosting work and some of the, uh, you know, on-course rover work for Sirius XM when they have rights to the events. And now it's... Um, you know, it's just turned into a really cool family that that we work with the week in and week out. We don't, we see each other through Zoom, but, you know, the only time we all get together at one time are during the major championships. And uh, those are the, those are the most fun weeks of the year, not only because we're watching and covering major championships, but because we get to hang out with our team and, um, and it's a hell of a team. It's the hardest working team in golf. There's no question about it. We work longer hours, get paid less and, um, we all love what we do and people, people take to it and they like it. And it's, uh, it's great. So I, again, was fortunate, right? Fortunate to get on tour right when I got out of college, because there's some people that don't ever get on tour that are, were as good or better than I was when I was coming out of college. So for me to get out there and get my feet wet and be able to play for 12 or 13 years on tour, um, and then be able to get back into the game to cover it. I've been very fortunate. I saw uh, in June, I assume you made the trip. It was uh, on the website. Did you guys make it out to the Prairie Club in uh, Nebraska? Uh, we actually had to cancel because of COVID, yeah. Oh, have you been out there yet? No, we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna move it to next year. We, we, can't get it, we can't get it flipped in this year because of the new scheduling and everything. But uh, I can't wait to get out there. They've been great uh, with what they offered us to bring – uh, 10 or 12 people out there and have a fun little three days of, of playing golf and, and drinking copious amounts of alcohol and smoking cigars and playing poker. And that's what our trips are all about. We try to do three or four of them a year. 
uh, obviously 2020 has been uh, has been cursed a little bit and we're probably only going to get two of those in this year but uh, we're really very much looking forward to getting out there it's it's my favorite area in the United States to go play golf is right. if you you know between Dismal River Prairie Club and Sand Hills it's just it's spectacular. I, like it's the area for Lynx golf is just so good. So I want to go out like a week early and go play all those other courses first. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, you could literally, I mean, Sandhill is my favorite golf course in the world. I architecturally, I think it's brilliant. Um, I spent a lot of time out in Dismal River. Uh, it's just great. I mean, the, the area, the, the total package, right? The hang, uh, the food, the atmosphere, everything. You guys are going to have a great trip out there. So yeah, I was we, wondering we if you were, made that one. I was hoping you did. We were in that area. We went to um, uh, Valley Neal for a couple of years. There. <clears throat> that whole thing. Stay yeah. on golf course and putt at night with glow-in-the-dark balls. And, you know, they had dinner set up for us each night out on the veranda. And it's just really cool. So that's why we were thinking – um, they're an all walking at Valley Neal, and we have some guys that kind of were struggling at the end. So we we looked for a course that would allow carts if you wanted to take them, and um, that's kind of how we ended up on the Prairie Club. But I'm um, bummed that we had to postpone that, and I'm very much looking forward to getting out there. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna absolutely love it. Well, I got a couple uh, others here, and then uh, kind of quick hitters, and then we'll uh, we'll get you out of Dodge. So my my first uh, sort of off the cuff one is. Now, this could be the best or the worst, but the the worst Pro-Am story you ever had playing the PGA Tour, which could make absolutely the best story. <laughs> so is there any classics out there that you're just shaking your head after that one? You go, how the hell did that just happen? And I don't believe that just happened for all, right. all the years so, you're out on tour of doing Pro-Ams. So we're, we're only going five tournaments into my career here, okay? Uh, I'm a rookie. I missed the first five cuts. And I um, decide I'm going to go up to Long Island and go water skiing with some friends on Saturday and Sunday before I go up to the Travelers and play. So we're tubing and water skiing and laying out at the beach and just I just need a couple days off. I'm I'm super frustrated and uh, can't get my game to come around. So I show up on Monday for the Monday Pro-Am at Travelers up there in Connecticut. And I cannot swing past waist high. My arms are just shot. So I asked the rules official, I said, hey, listen, there's no way I can play today. I mean, there's no way I can help this team. Can I just take my wedges and my putter and walk around with them and just give these guys a four-hour playing lesson? And still to this day, I can't believe they told me I couldn't do that. That would have been the greatest pro-am in the world for those guys, right? Because so, well, now you're forced, like, you're going to have to put on a horse and pony show, right? Like if you can't swing the full swings, which the AMs yeah, want to see the pros hit yeah. it far. Yeah, yeah, this is going to be world-class short game, you know, school here for I'm these guys. I'm just the MCN. I'll make fun of them. I'll help them. I'll work on their – it would just be – it would have been perfect. Right. I think that's actually what they should do. Um, but anyway, so I try to play. And I shoot like 82. And I mean, I'm hooping it everywhere. I, I probably had 22 putts and I shot 82. And I'm playing from the back tees. We've got three guys that are all from the same company and then just a single guy who wasn't with the, with the other three guys. And he was kind of an asshole all day long and just didn't really say much. And he was kind of, you know, keep it. We, we would already make a score and he would be putting out for his whatever, four or five. And we've already got a birdie or whatever it is. And, and uh, so we get done 
and I'm like, hey, thanks, you know, I'm thanking everybody, and I'm talking with the three guys, and the one, the single guy comes up, and he's got a scorecard filled out with his score on it and my score on it. Mind you, he's played the golf course 600 yards shorter than I have, and I can't swing. And he has my name and all the scores on it, his name and all the scores on it, and he asked me to sign the card. <laughs> this is and going in the office, right? One of the guys that I was playing with got so pissed. He was like, listen, asshole, you haven't said a word all day. You, he already told you the story about why he can't swing, and he still stayed out here with us for five hours and spent all this time with us, and you're going to do him like that? And and I was just standing there letting this guy berate the other guy. And then, you know, he got done and I just kind of looked at him and I said, no, nah, I'd rather not sign that. And I just, I, I mean, I've told so many people that story and everybody is just shell shocked that somebody would do that. But um, a, a, another, a good one, and there's been a million good ones, but um, Rendezvous uh, Rib House in, in Memphis is, is one of the most famous rib places in Memphis. And I, I played with the owner on a on a in a Monday Pro Am in Memphis and he sent a limo that night to to pick me and like four four of my buddies up and drive us down to rendezvous and skip the entire line and go sit in the family section and eat at this place. And I've been friends with the guy ever since and um that's the kind of stuff that I was talking about before too. Not just the players, the people that I've met on the road that you see year in and year out at the same event some some couples who are retired use these tournaments to be you know to be uh, volunteers as their as their vacation and we'll see them five or six times a year all around the country so that that's sort of where I was getting at with my answer before with what's the best thing about the tour and that that really is I mean the people that you meet um, the the fans that you make it's, it's just really cool Best two or three golf courses you've ever had the opportunity to play, not necessarily on tour, but just anywhere where you just, God, I could wake up and play this golf course every day architecturally. It's that good. My favorite golf course in the world, and yes, I have played Augusta National. My favorite golf course in the world is about 45 minutes from Augusta National, and it's Palmetto Golf Club. It's um, I have never played that golf course and not had the most, like, let's say I played it 50 times. Uh, those 50 times I've played that golf course were in the 75 most fun rounds of golf I've ever had. The architecture, um, the the layout, the piece of land, uh, it's 6,500 yards long, and it'll give you everything that you want. It's tough in spots. It's easy in spots. And it's just, by the way, beers are $1.50. Canned beer is $1.50. And they have hot dogs and chicken salad and tuna salad sandwiches. That's all you can get. And, and, um, you know, candy bars and stuff like that. Um, so every time we go, we cool her up and everybody gets a 12 and rock and roll, but get there early, play 36. And, and I've been really fortunate there too, cause it's a private club and, um, right. Brooks Blackburn is, is the pro there. He's been awfully generous and, and, there have been a couple of times when we had, you know, listener events where we were playing down there in that area where we got rained out where we were and, and they let us come over and play. So again, uh, you know, I, being fortunate, I know sounds like it's a theme of, of this podcast that we're doing here, but um, I have been, and I think it's important to recognize that. 
Last one I got for you. Best golf shot you ever hit under pressure. Mm. Well, the best shot, the best golf shot I've ever hit wasn't under pressure. So. All right, let's hear that one. You what's want the, that what's one? the best golf shot? Yeah, we'll take that one. Best one right. you ever hit. So I'm playing down at the Honda. Um, I think it was Eagle Trace. I can't remember. They switched courses so many times when I was playing. Like four or five times they switched golf courses down there. Finally settling on PGA National, and now they have a great tournament and a great event. But uh, the 18th hole is a par five, and it water all down the right-hand side. You drive it up there, and then you either lay up you know, over to the left, and it's kind of a narrow layup. And I hit the ball, and then the green is kind of peninsula with water. It's all around the right and all around the front, and um, all bulkheaded. And I shoot 80 the first day, and I've never finished last in the tournament. And I'm like, I'm not finishing last in this tournament. I went out and hit balls all afternoon and got ready for the next day, and I'm not giving up, man. I'm going to go out there and play my ass off so I don't finish last. And I'm playing pretty well. I'm um I think I'm like one or two under coming into 18th hole. It's my ninth hole of the day. And so, so I'm, I've got it kind of going. I hit it in the left rough, and then I tried to squeeze squeeze it up there a little bit too far on my layup, and I hit it in a, in a fairway bunker. And it's got about a, I don't know, a two-foot lip on it. I'm probably about eight feet from that lip. I've got 135 yards, and the wind's blowing out of the left and into me about 40 miles an hour. And the the flagstick is way over on the front right of the green where you can hit it in the water right and hit it in the water short. And I'm like, gosh, got a good round going. My caddy's like, dude, we got nothing. Just hit it over here and hit it on the green. Let's get on with it. And I was like, no, I'm seeing something here. I'm seeing something. It was on a little bit of an upslope. And I was like, give me the five iron. He says, What? So you give me the five iron. And I moved about 300 people on the left there that where the ropes kind of came out just in case I didn't pull the shot off. And I've got this space wide open. It's 40, it's 30 degrees open. And I've got 135 yards, got the wind 40 miles an hour quartering into and out of the left. And I hit this shot that started 70 yards left of the green and hit this giant high slice. And when it got to the green, like where the green started, it was still left of the green. But the wind, you had caught this ball, and it was actually moving to the right and might even have been moving backwards. And it lands on the back left of the green and runs like 50 feet all the way down to the hole to about 8 feet. Now, the story would be, it would be a storybook ending if I told you I made that putt and made birdie. But I gagged it and missed it. <laughs> Wait, I thought you were going to make the like, make the eagle, then make him the cut, right? Yeah, After the right? Eating, I right. I thought that's where this was going. Sometimes you sometimes you, play for diff- sometimes you play for different things. Well, hell of a golf shot, though. I don't think yeah. I have that one in my arsenal to hit a five iron out of a bunker in a forty. I think I'm laying that one up with my skill set. I'm just going to you know try to make you know my five the hard way. I think I'll be honest with you. I'd still be out there all day trying to pull that shot off. Well, I certainly appreciate it. Uh, I was looking forward to this conversation. So thanks for coming on with us. Um, you know, we'll be listening to the show. And, uh, yeah, keep up the good work. It's going to be a fun time of year here starting off with uh, some big boy tournaments coming through. So looking yeah. forward to it. And uh, great talking to you. I really appreciate your time I, today. Bro. I appreciate it as well, Jason. And I just wanted to uh, to let you know that I'm appreciative of you uh, and um, Sub70 for sending some gear. And I'm very much looking forward to, to trying it out and getting back to you. Yeah, give us a field report when you uh, when you get out there and play with it a little bit. Looking forward to it. But I really appreciate it. All right, partner.